Morning. It's good to see you this morning, and isn't it good to be able to walk into this building without having your umbrellas out? Wow, this last week has been uh, has been just a lot of rain, and it seems like every time that you you think that you might have a you might, wow. <laughs> Every time that you think that it might be drying up, then, then, then it, it continues to rain again. But it's been beautiful this morning, and we've had an opportunity to come in and, and uh, not have all that rain. And so we're just going to thank the Lord for that. But He knows what we need, and He knows when to send it. And so we just have to trust Him with regard to that. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Yes, we have turned over into a new chapter. We are now in Mark chapter 5, and we are just systematically making our way through this book. And as we come to the passage that we're going to look at this morning, the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 5, we pick up on what this passage alerts us to, which is the reality of demonic activity and demon possession. Now, in our modern society, the discussion of Satan and the demonic typically slides into one of two extremes both of which, quite frankly, are dangerous traps. The first one is this. It's the extreme, it's the extreme trap of, of denying that demons even exist. It, it is the trap that just flat out doesn't believe that Satan is a real entity and a belief that the subject of demons and demonic activity is a product of the unenlightened past and that that's where it should remain in the past. That would be the first trap. It's the trap of disbelief and denial. The second trap that modern society tends to fall into is the opposite of the first. It is to develop an inordinate interest in the devil and the demonic world. And I think that detrimental fascination can be demonstrated in our society, in our culture, through the countless movies and TV shows and video games and books that quite frankly betray an unhealthy obsession for the dark world of Satan and his activities. The Bible says that when we have come to faith in Christ, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And the scriptures also say that our minds are to focus our attention on those things, not on not on the things of darkness. As Christians, we've had to be aware of both of these traps. In fact, as C.S. Lewis has written in the preface of his very famous book, a book that I would encourage you to read if you've not ever read it, the book called Screwtape Letters, he writes in the preface of that book that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. He goes on to say that the devil and his demons are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. This morning, as we examine the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 5, my goal is for us to avoid either of those two extremes. We will very clearly acknowledge both the existence and the power of Satan's demonic forces who desire to create chaos by distorting and degrading humans who are created in the image of God. 
But we will also very clearly recognize that while Satan and his demons do whatever they can to wreak havoc on this world and those living in it, Jesus' authority and power over those evil forces is far superior and therefore infinitely worthier of our attention, our allegiance, and our worship. So with that as an introduction to our passage this morning, let's hear God's holy word. Beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 5, the word of God says this, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat... Immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs and whom no one could bind, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and the New King James says worshipped him. That's, that's not the best word there. The word in Greek is proskanuo, which means to throw oneself down before. Demons are certainly not going to worship Jesus. So he threw himself down before Jesus and he cried out verse 7 with a loud voice and said what have I to do with you Jesus son of the most high God I implore you by God that you do not torment me for he that is Jesus had said to him come out of the man unclean spirit then Jesus asked him what is your name and he answered saying my name is legion for we are many and he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains so all the demons begged him saying send us to the swine that we may enter them and at once Jesus gave them permission then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine there were about 2,000 and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. And then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed, and he had legion sitting, and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told how it had happened to him, how who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. And then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truthfulness. Thank you that it pierces our hearts and exposes us. Thank you for the depth of detail that you give us to help us understand your word. 
And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, who without him we would not be able to understand anything. So, Father, this morning I pray that through your word and by your Holy Spirit, you would grant to us knowledge and understanding and then also that our lives might be changed as a result of the time we spent studying your scriptures this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you were with us last week or if you've been reading and kind of tracking along with, with the Gospel of Mark, you'll note that we studied Mark 4 last week, the end of that chapter. And at the end of that chapter, we noticed that, that Jesus was on a boat with his disciples in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And it was there when a great sudden and surprising and severe storm came up that Jesus was able to speak calmly and tell the, the wind to die down and the waves to stop. And Jesus displayed his mighty power to, to bring calm amidst the chaos of a very real storm. Well, then you move from that passage here into the passage in chapter 5 and you wind up figuring out that the theme of the verses that I just read from you in Mark 5 is the same as it was in some ways in Mark 4. There Jesus displayed His power over the natural world. Here, though, when Jesus speaks, He brings calm into the chaos of the spiritual world. In fact, as R.C. Sproul has written, the winds and the waves of the sea threaten to destroy Jesus and His disciples. And the demons from hell threaten to destroy the man whose body they were inhabiting. Both of these examples of chaos, both were overcome by the power of Christ. I want you to notice how Mark begins to describe, though, what's taking place in this man's life that he meets there on this shore. Notice that Mark uses very descriptive terminology with regard to the man. He says that the man was possessed by an unclean spirit. We are told that his dwelling was among the tombs. And in other words, he lived an unclean life among the unclean dead, which is significant because we learn that the man himself was home to unclean spirits. Mark also tells us that the reason the man lived in the tombs was that he had become separated from society because of his violence. So fierce and so vicious was he that Mark tells us that folks had tried to restrain him. They had tried to calm him. In fact, verse 3 says the people had tried to bind or subdue or tame him. And that word in the Greek is actually the word that was used of those who would attempt to try to tame wild animals. However, we notice that all attempts to restrain him were in vain because of the man's really inhuman strength. He was so strong that it says that he continued to break the shackles. He continued to break the chains that had been repeatedly put on him. Now, if all of that weren't terrible enough, we also learned that he was self-destructive and he was deranged. His terror and his torment caused him to groan and to scream all the time, night and day while he was in the tombs and while he was out in the mountainside. His agony was such that he would cut himself with stones. Luke even tells us a further uh, description of this man that Mark doesn't tell us in his account of it. Luke says that the man was completely naked, that he didn't wear any clothes. Now, here's my question for you. Can you imagine such a sight? Can you get a picture of what this, the torment of this man's life was like? Can you imagine walking down the beach and suddenly hearing the man shrieking and then running towards you and then seeing that? What kind of fear that would incite within you? 
One author I read theorized that this man was so notorious and terrifying that parents would likely try to make their kids behave by telling them that if they didn't, they would send them out to live with this guy out in the tombs. Kent Hughes describes the man this way. He says, the poor naked man was a mass of bleeding lacerations, scabs, infections, and scar tissue, living in a delirium of pain and masochistic pleasure. Philip Graham Ryken says it like this. He says, the man was in nearly the worst condition that anyone could imagine. He was naked, lonely, violent, and insane, walking among the dead. Certainly, we can begin to understand the plight of this man, the terrible scenario and situation in which he found himself. The picture that Mark paints for us is a revulsive one. But even though we are repulsed and nauseated perhaps by the, the description of this man, and though we recognize the terror that encountering him would no doubt produce, my guess is that we still feel some sympathy for him. We pity one whose life has been so torn apart by these demonic forces that wreaked havoc upon every aspect of his existence. But I believe that it's important for us to understand that if we just stop there, if all we do in the opening verses of this passage is see this demon-possessed man in isolation of the bigger story that is presented to us in Scripture, then we will miss the intended impact of this story. In fact, let me point you to the first point on your outline that I want you to see this morning. I want you to know that this text presents us with a problem. It's a problem for this man, but it's an actually bigger problem than we might first imagine. The, the first point on your outline is this. The lonely, violent, tormented, and self-destructive life of the man oppressed, dominated by demons is an extreme, yet very accurate picture of the wretched condition we all share apart from Christ. I want to quote Philip Ryken once more. He says that for all of this man's misery... We can see ourselves in his situation because sin has similar effects on all of us. It exposes us naked in our guilt. It alienates us from one another, leaving us lonely and alone. It makes us violent, at least in our attitudes, if not in our actions. And spiritually speaking, we walk among the dead because the scriptures teach us that we are, apart from Christ, dead in our trespasses and sins. Friends, that is who we are without Jesus. And of course, we know from what Scripture teaches us that this is precisely where Satan desires to keep us. From the very beginning, Satan and his minions have sought to blind men, women, boys, and girls to their wretchedness apart from Christ. They want to keep us bound in our miserable state of sin. And we learn in Genesis 1, verse 27, that mankind was created in the image of God. But Satan and his demonic forces do everything within their power to drive human beings to the depths of disgrace and ruin in order to destroy and distort the image of God in them. So in these first few verses, we are presented with the problem. And as we've seen, the picture that Mark paints for us is a, 
a one that is filled with terror. It describes a man who is the victim of demonic malevolence that is coupled with human indifference and human impotence. And it's a terrible picture. But it's not only of one individual. It's rather a picture that is a microcosm of the world that is currently under the attack of Satan and his demons. It's a picture of what the world looks like as a result of sin. It is a picture showing us what humanity left to itself apart from Christ looks like. But what I want you to know, I want you to also know is that Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, he shows up and lands on the, so, on the shore where this man lived. He's shown up and he's invaded this man's habitat. And what I want you to know is a confrontation is immediately ensues. Verse 6, we read that the demon-possessed man saw Jesus from afar. And when he did, he ran and threw himself down before Jesus. And as I mentioned, he didn't come down to worship him. Demons do not worship Jesus. They do not worship God, but they did throw themselves down. Now, what's been interesting is that many scholars have tried to figure out, well, was this, a, was this some kind of an, an act of aggression toward Jesus on behalf of the demons as they run violently down there toward him? Or, or was it perhaps that the man, was a, it was a plea on his behalf to come to Jesus because he knew he could heal him? Some have offered that the concepts are, are sort of, uh, they're, they're combined here because what you see is a conflict that's raging within the man. He wants to run to Jesus, and the demons just want to throw him down. The truth of the matter is we, we really don't know for sure exactly why this happens the way it does, but we do know that the confrontation continues because in verse 7, the demons overpower the man and speak to Jesus, and they cry out to him. And literally, the verb there means that they, he screamed at the top of his lungs to Jesus. And this man who's been possessed by these demonic spirits Scream out to Jesus, what have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now what's interesting to me is that while humans often have a very difficult time being able to figure out exactly who Jesus is. Let's face it, the disciples did just the night before. Jesus had spoke to the wind and the waves and everything had become placidly calm and then they looked at one another and they said, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him. Even his own disciples were having a hard time understanding who Jesus was, but these demons had no difficulty whatsoever knowing who Jesus was. He was Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Here's something that you ought to know. Demons have very, very orthodox theology. They know exactly who God is. They know exactly who Jesus is. They know that they are under his ultimate power. They know that Jesus has defeated them and that he has dealt them their defeat and death through his death and resurrection. And as James 2.19 says, the demons believe all of that. They do not worship him, but they do tremble. James 2.19 says. But even so, what we see here is that they also know this. They know that for at least a period of time, they are allowed to do what they do until their time is up. And that seems to be at the heart of this encounter. The demons are possessing this man. They are causing him to come at Jesus in an antagonistic way and shout at him, basically imploring him to stay out of their affairs and calling on him to not torment them before the rightful time of their judgment. And you, hit, you get in this a very sense of panic 
in the way that they speak to Jesus. They're panicking because they know that they're outranked and they know that they're outpowered. Now, verse 8 tells us why they're in a panic. Verse 8 actually happens prior to verse 7, but Mark tells us the reason that they're panicked is because Jesus had already said to the man, come out of him, you evil spirit. So they know that their time of being able to continue to inhabit this man and wreak havoc on his life is up. And so in panic, they cry out. Now, thus far, the story that Mark tells us has been clipping along at a pretty rapid pace. But then in verse 9, things slow down just a bit. Jesus begins to ask the questions. And Jesus asks this question, what is your name? Now, the possessed man answers... But we begin to see that it's not him who is speaking necessarily as much as it is the demons. And the reason being is because he says, my name is Legion for we. Plural, personal pronoun. We are many. Now it should be noted that a legion in the Roman army was a regiment that consisted of 6,000 soldiers. Does that mean that this man was inhabited by 6,000 demons? Well, we cannot say with absolute certainty, but the name does indicate to us that there were many demons that were possessing him and wreaking havoc on this man's life. In fact, we read just a few verses later that there were enough demons possessing this man that when they were expelled, they went and inhabited a herd of swine that was about 2,000 large. Now, notice this too. Because Jesus had commanded the evil spirits to come out of the man, they knew that they had to do exactly that. They didn't have another choice. As we've said, they were outranked. They were outpowered. So they go on to beg Jesus, don't send us out of the country. Don't send us out of this region. Mark Strauss makes an interesting comment here. He points out that demons perhaps are territorial beings who seek to retain control over certain locales. And that's what's behind this seemingly odd request. Perhaps that's the case. However, we also know from Luke's version of this account that the evil spirits were not ready to be conscribed to the abyss, which is their ultimate home in judgment. Whatever the case may be, they begged to be sent to this large herd of swine that was feeding there on the mountainside. But what's key to note is that without Christ's permission, these demons were not going to be enabled. They weren't enabled to, to go and inhabit the swine. And what that tells us is that Jesus is the one who is unmistakably in charge of everything that is happening on this shoreline. The demon-possessed man's life had, had been in a state of perpetual chaos due to the overpowering control of the demons up to this point. But now that Jesus has come on to his scene, there is no confusion as to who is actually in charge. And I want you to notice further, according to verse 13, when Jesus permitted the demons to go and enter the large herd of about 2,000 pigs, Mark says that the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. At various points in history, people have criticized Jesus because of what happens here. In fact, the British philosopher Sir Bertrand Russell wrote a very provocative book in which he, he entitled Why I Am Not a Christian. In that book, he cites this specific incident as one of the reasons why he chose not to embrace Christianity. 
Because, he says, Jesus permitted the demons to inhabit the swine, Russell concluded that Jesus was neither wise nor was he virtuous. No doubt there are those today who still question, why didn't Jesus just, just send the demons straight to hell where they need to be? Why not just go ahead and consign them to that place? Well, the scriptures do not give us a definitive answer here. When Luke's gospel, we understand, and also when Matthew, there, there seems to be that there was a timing and that the timing was not yet right. Jesus himself said at times, the timing is not yet fulfilled. What we can say is this. It wasn't Jesus who destroyed the pigs. It was rather the demons who enraged them and drove them off the cliff. But even more importantly, as Hughes notes, the dramatic end of the swine was a powerful visual testimony to the ex-demoniac about what he had been delivered from. Think about this. What happened to those pigs as they became inhabited by all of those demons, was really a representation of what had been happening on the inside of this man throughout this time that he had been possessed. It was a visual display for anybody to see. That's just how demonic, that's just how destructive, that's just how malevolent these spirit beings were to do that to a herd of pigs, and yet this man had all of those demons inside of him. But please understand this. The point of this passage is not the pigs. In fact, what happened to them is not even the most astounding thing that happens that Mark describes, is it? You get down to verse 14, the pig herders, they go off to tell the owners what happened because they didn't want to be held responsible for the fact that 2,000 pigs are now drowning in the middle of the sea. And the townspeople, who knows how many there were, they come running back out to see. And when they get to where Jesus is, verse 15, they find this man, this formerly demon-possessed man, this man that was described in the first five verses of this chapter as being wildly, wildly demonic-possessed. Well, they see the one who had been demon-possessed who had the legion sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Now, just consider that miracle for a moment. Previously, we learned that the man was naked. Now he's clothed. Previously, he'd been wandering aimlessly. Now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Previously, he was living in the tombs with the dead. Now he's sitting among the living. Previously, he was shrieking and screaming at the top of his lungs. Now he's quiet. Previously, he was threatening and fighting. Now he's calm. Previously, he was tormented. Now he's comforted. Previously, his life was defined by chaos. Now it is defined by peace. And tranquility. Friend, this is the magnificent picture of just how gracious and merciful Jesus was to this man. This, this is the solution that Jesus provided to this man's problem. But just as we saw with the problem before, we can't only look at it being his problem and not our problem. We can't look at the solution that Jesus provides and not recognize that the solution he provided this man is the same solution he provides you and I. And that brings me to the second point that I want you to see this morning. Point number two is this. The authority of Jesus to cast out the demons coupled with his display of grace and mercy toward this man, well, that points us to the ultimate demonstration of his power and love and compassion it's demonstrated through his sacrifice on the cross. As we noted earlier, all of us find ourselves helplessly and hopelessly 
trapped by our sin. Satan and his minions do everything they can to distort the image of God in us and to keep us blinded. But God in his great love for us and through his death sent his, sent his son Jesus to die in our place. On the cross, Jesus Christ received the punishment that we rightly deserve so that we might be set free from the penalty of our sin and receive the, the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. That is why, friends, that Jesus came to our shore. And it is why he has demonstrated his power, his love, his compassion. Listen to how some of the other writers of the New Testament describe it. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the writer of Hebrews says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their life subject to bondage. The Apostle Paul writes it this way in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. This is the ultimate salvation solution that Jesus came to provide to our problem. And we see it clearly demonstrated for us right here on this pagan shoreline. Now, we might expect that when the townspeople showed up that they would just be giddy with excitement. After all, this man had tormented them for years. They tried to lock him up, chain him up, put him up, shut him up, but they couldn't do any of those things. But now they find him sitting and he's clothed and he's seated and he's in his right mind. And we might think, wow, they're going to love this. Instead, verse 15 says they were afraid. When those told how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine, Verse 17 is one of the most sad, one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. It says, then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. Wouldn't you think that these townspeople would have at least congratulated the man? Wouldn't you think that they would have seen what had happened to him and thought to themselves, you know, we've got some sick, deranged people that live with us. We're going to bring them out here and see if he can do to them what he's done to this man. That's what, the, that's what the great crowds were doing on the other side of the sea, right? We might have even imagined that they would have said, Jesus, can you not just stay here a little longer till we can try to figure you out and figure out what you're doing? But instead, as David Garland has written, they were more comfortable with the malevolent forces that, were, that take captive human beings and destroy animals than they were with the one who can expel them. To them, Jesus is more dangerous and worrisome than the demons were. So rather than embrace him, they chased off the source of their deliverance and their salvation. Why do you think they were so fearful? Well, a number of things, potentially. Perhaps it was that they had forfeited a significant income. As one writer put it, 2,000 pigs is a lot of bacon. Their commercial livelihood had been destroyed. Perhaps their, their fear stemmed from the fact that they realized that, that the wonder-working power of Jesus would demand some things for them, and that it might cost them, and it might cost them dearly. 
And so they had misplaced priorities. That's, that's definitely a possibility and, and, and a great probability. I also think, though, that seeing the change in this man probably brought great fear upon them. You see, like the disciples on the night before when they were in the boat and Jesus spoke calm and, and everything was placid on that sea after that great storm had come, these people too were awestruck. They didn't have a category that they could put Jesus in that they could understand, and so they were fearful. But I also think this is the case. When they saw the life change that had taken place in this man, they may have thought, wow, if he can do that to this guy, what might he do in my life? And friends, let me tell you something. That's not always an easy question to ask. It's not always comforting to think that Jesus might come in and change everything about you. For many, the thought of change, the thought that Jesus might actually take who you are and transform you, well, for many, that thought is terrifying. Deep down, many are afraid that Jesus can actually do what the scriptures say that he can and will do. And instead of admitting their need of a savior, they instead find it much easier to chase Jesus away. And that leads me to the two responses that we see. Point number three, the first sub-point there is A. And I want you to see this first response. It's this. The misplaced priorities and fear of the townspeople lead them to turn Jesus away mirroring the same irrational and tragic mistake others make when confronted with their need of a Savior. And what I want you to notice is that Jesus grants the request of the people. They chased him away and he complied with their demand. And friends, I want you to know this. Those who reject his offer of grace will have their request granted. But what about the man who had been delivered of the legion of demons? How did he respond to Christ? Well, we've already seen by his posture he was, he was clothed, seated, and in his right mind. So we already know that he had become submissive to Jesus by this point. We also read then in verse 18 that when Jesus was loading up in the boat to leave the region, he goes and he begs him, please take me with you. Let me be one of your disciples. Let me get in that boat and become one of the twelve, and now I'll make the thirteenth. We'll go together. Let me be with you, Jesus. But interestingly enough, Jesus refuses this man's request. And in fact, in this entire passage, in all 20 verses, this is the only request that Jesus denies. He gives in to everything else. The demons asked to go into the pigs, he let them go. The people asked him to leave the region, he decided to leave. The man says, can I come with you? And he says, no. See, the man, Jesus decides to give him an avenue to live his life in grateful service to the one who delivered it in a way different from what he imagined. He says, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And then we find that the man departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis and all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Notice that this man was not only personally transformed, as we saw earlier, but his mission in life had now taken a new turn. He was no longer to live an isolated life. Rather, he was now a newly commissioned missionary to a larger region of, of the Decapolis. He was to rekindle old relationships with his friends and his family. And he was to make new relationships. And in doing so, Jesus gave him the message that he was to announce. He says, you go tell them the great things that I've done for you and how I've showed compassion to you. I like what Philip Graham Rackin has said. 
This man, he was not only delivered from evil spirits, he was not only saved from something, he was saved to something. And brothers and sisters, if you have been saved from the Satan who has come to, to destroy your life, and if you have been delivered from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light, I need you to understand you have not just been saved from something, you have been saved to something. You have been saved to a life that is to take the good news of the gospel to a lost and dark world. You can begin with your friends and family, just as this man did, but you can also make new relationships in that world. And they need to hear just what those in the Decapolis heard. This was what my life once was. But because Jesus has shown up on the shore of my life, and because he has done for me what I could not do for myself, and because I have placed my faith firmly in what he has done, I can tell you now what he has done for me, he will do for you. That was what this, the life of this man became. And so the last subpoint on your outline this morning is this. The man whose life was transformed by Jesus became a powerful witness for Jesus, serving as, as an example for believers today. Now, I just want you to know, we've looked at the problem, we've looked at the solution, we've looked at the couple of responses. This has been a very complex and in-depth sermon. My sermon in a sentence is really simple, though. My sermon in a sentence is very simple. It's just this. Jesus can take a life that is broken. He can make it whole again. And in the process, he'll give it new purpose and meaning. I know that's a simple stated sermon in a sentence, but I want you to know that's a simple stated part of the gospel right there. That's what the gospel is all about. Jesus Christ takes and transforms lives and gives them new purpose. And I want you to know this morning, Christ has already done that on the cross. He has done everything that's necessary. Through his power and his authority, he has already defeated all the forces that need to be defeated. The question is, will you trust in him today? Or will you irrationally and tragically send him away? Friend, understand this. In Jesus lies your only hope of salvation and eternal life. Friend, do not, do not send him away. If you are one who has placed your faith in Christ, then the question is, are you telling others about the great things that he has done for you? Do you others know that Jesus has shown compassion to you and has delivered you from the domain of darkness in the kingdom of his light? These are the questions that this text demands for you and I to consider.